0: Hey TYT, I'm Nomi Konst. We have a special guest today. Uh, we have the one and only James Ogby who's the president of the Arab American Institute. He was also on the DNC's Platform Committee in 2016 and most recently on the Unity Reform Commission. Uh, he's a Democratic Party activist as well as an activist for um, ethnic, ethnic issues, I guess you could say is probably the, the right way of saying it. Um, but, you know, we're having him on today to talk about an article he wrote recently uh, that, that goes back 15 years to when we were discussing the Iraq War. Now, if you recall, or if you weren't old enough to recall, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of debate over whether or not to get into the Iraq War, or enough debate, I should say. And as a result, you know, we're, we went into a war prematurely under false uh, pretenses. And here we are again, facing a debate over... Uh, quite a bit of foreign policy, and the Democrats aren't necessarily uh, being the anti-war party that they once were. So, uh, Jim, Dr. Zogby, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us just a little bit about what motivated you to write this piece? Well,
1: no, I mean, it's been 15 years, and I I guess as we came up, as we're coming up in the anniversary of the war, which was um, in in many ways uh, an enormous trauma for the country, and I think Um, I I can't imagine another event in the last 50 years in my lifetime um, since Vietnam that has been as devastating to the United States, maybe even more devastating than Vietnam in terms of the consequences that have spilled out as a result of this war. So last week I wrote uh, about the consequences. Um, I had a debate at one point with John McCain in front of an international education group and he was talking about bombing Syria and I got up and said, the senator who never met a country, he didn't want to bomb. And the consequences of that um, are something that needs to be factored in. I mean, it, it, this isn't a video game where, you you know, you sort of, you know, uh, maneuver and bomb and then you walk out clean. I remember when uh, we were oh, President Obama was talking about Libya. I was on with Chris Matthews and he said, uh, we're going into a humanitarian rescue mission to take out Gaddafi and stop his troops. And what do you think about that? And I said, Chris, I don't agree. I think that we don't know what the objectives, what the consequences, we don't know what the commitment is. And we don't know what is going to come after Gaddafi. We don't know who we're fighting for. We don't know enough about Libya to be able to make a, a, an intelligent judgment. His response was, that's not the answer I was looking for. And he went to Richard Engel, who then agreed with him uh, on the fact that it was important. That sort of sense of sort of getting along uh, just w- taking what what was the most convenient position for Democrats, which is bad guy, let's go get him, is something that worried me back in in 2001, 2 and 3. I was on the Council on Foreign Relations working group on on public diplomacy, and from the started two weeks after 9/11, from the very first meeting, Newt Gingrich, Richard Perle, and company were advocating bombing Iraq. Um, they felt that it was a clean, quick thing, you know flowers in the street, the people would be celebrating America as liberators. Uh, Wolfowitz said, it's only going to cost us uh, about a billion dollars and the troops will only have to be there for six months. And in three weeks, the dictator will be gone. It'll take a little while to settle and then we'll be home. That was the big lie. And so when the DNC met uh, before the war, I introduced a resolution that said, the president hasn't been honest with us. Um, The president has not been square with the American people about the cost, the commitment, uh, what's going to come next. Um, I I had read the Powell Doctrine, which Colin Powell had articulated about when and why you go to war and what the conditions have to be. None of them were met. So I introduced this resolution and what happened was what startled me. Um, The party leadership said, you can't do it. We have to stand with the president. Um, The president,
0: a Republican president.
1: Yeah, and and they were afraid. I mean, they were afraid on national security issues. They didn't want to look weak. Um, But looking weak and being smart are different things, you know? You can be smart, and that's not weak. This was a question of were we going to be smart or dumb? We had done the same thing in September of the previous year when the president wanted an authorization to go to war. And um, I was at a DNC meeting, and the pollster was telling us, you know, the American people don't care about this. We got to give it to them because the real issues they care about are social security, health care, and um, uh, and corporate corruption, which of course they did care about. But I said, you know, if you give him this war act, uh, if you give him this authorization, he will not allow you to pivot to those economic issues. He'll be the war president and he'll run all over you. I was right. They were wrong. Um, we argued at that meeting. I was, you know, no, nobody would agree with me. And so when we come to the February meeting, I wanted this resolution. They told me I couldn't introduce it. I said I could. I have the right to do it, and I did. Uh, but they then made it, uh, 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 they ganged up literally. And they said, you can talk about it, introduce it, but there will not be a debate and there will not be a vote. So I gave my talk. I actually got a standing ovation for it. Um, and then the chair uh, gaveled order and said, we will not allow a second. And uh, it, it is the motion is being withdrawn. I had no idea what to do about it. And so that, that's that was the deal that uh, I introduced it, speak about it and withdraw it. That was the meeting where Howard Dean, if you recall, came out and started his speech. This was just about maybe four or five hours later. He said, um, I want to know why the leaders of my party, um, are supporting this rush to war. I come from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. He must have heard what was going on. But Howard Dean was the only candidate effectively raising the anti-war issue that year. Um, and um, and it, it, you recall, I mean, all the other major candidates were not. They were not in an anti-war mode. And And so... They didn't want to debate in 2004. We had the debate again in 2008 with Obama and and Clinton and and Biden and everybody else. We had it again in 2016 with Bernie and and Secretary Clinton. Uh, Unless we get this right um, and and, uh, understand that our strength is our smartness. It's not the size of our weapons. It's how we think about what we do in foreign policy we're we're not going to get anywhere.
0: There's a lot to unpack here because uh, a lot of these people that were in the room in the early two thousands are still in the room, and if and and maybe even more so than they were fifteen years ago. Meaning the Democratic National Committee has doubled down on on these 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 folks who have these perspectives, and uh, there's there's a DNC meeting that's coming up in March, and you are running to get back onto the uh, <laughs> into leadership there, uh, because yeah. you were taken off of leadership. as in, you, know, you, you were appointed by the chair at one point, and the chair, uh, Tom Perez, took you off in, in, at the last meeting. And so now you're running again. Uh, but I think this is important because you, know, you were one of the few voices in the room at that time saying, we have to be smart and challenge the Republican administration that wanted to rush to war and now your voice is no longer in that room. Are there voices in the room that are going to be able to step up and say, we shouldn't rush to in, war?
1: Look, there's a lot of good people on the DNC, there there are. Uh, and, But there also is a culture of getting along within the institution, which is not unlike most institutions, right? I mean, um, whether it's a college fraternity or sorority or a you know, or the, the club you belong to in your, in your neighborhood. Um, there's a sense of, um, I don't want to get out of line and, you know, have everybody upset with me. Um, and so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell the chairman or the president of the club, um, that, you know, he's, you know, got a pimple on his cheek or something, you know, nobody wants to get into that. Uh, that culture of getting along is, it inhibits, Growth and change. Um, and the party has had a losing strategy now for many years. Uh, we started, you mentioned the Ethnic Council. The Ethnic Council, we started it back in the 90s. It was an, an effort to deal with the fact that uh, we had lost as a party any relationship uh, with what I call sometimes working class whites. I call them ethnic communities. The European Mediterranean ethnic communities that once were the bedrock of the Democratic Party. Um, we, st- it, It's not that they left us, you know, the myth is they all got wealthy and moved into the suburbs. If you go to South Philadelphia, if you go to Chicago, if you go to Cleveland and Pittsburgh, those ethnic communities are still there and they're being replenished by new ethnic communities from Africa, from Asia, from, and and they simply, can be our people, because as my mom said, when immigrants come, it was the Democratic Party who took care of them and looked out for them. It's the Democratic Party that believed they needed a helping hand. It's the Democratic Party that protected their rights as labor, protected their rights and and opportunities to public education and, and healthcare. That's who we are, but we stopped talking to them and we got into the politics of identity and the politics of causes, all of which are good, but it's not an either or proposition. But within the culture of the Democratic Party, it is. So we actually have our pollsters come and talk to us at periodic executive committee meetings about we shouldn't waste any money throwing it after voters we're never going to get. Uh, we, we we don't want to you're never going to get the white vote. They call it the white vote, which is a totally unscientific way of describing it lumps together Bubba, you know, right. and and and, you know, some union guy in 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 uh, Pittsburgh who just lost his job because the factory's closing down, whatever. You know, it's just wrong to do it, and so I've been arguing that case now for 20 years. And we say we need $100,000 for a budget for ethnic voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio states. We lose. Um, we know we could do miracles with that. They say there's no money, but there is 5.3 million to do Oppo research on on Trump. There is,
0: and a- our own congressional candidates we're now learning
1: <laughs> on their own congressional candidates yeah. that they don't want to. have. I mean, the money is there. So the issue of transparency is something that I've also been raising. Where's the money? What are we doing with it? Um, Some people don't like you raising questions. I happen to think it's healthy to raise questions. So if I win or lose, it's fine. I I just feel it's important to continue to challenge and not just get along. Do do
0: you have the sense uh, that there might be members of the Democratic National Committee who are I mean, let's forget the politics for a second, that are invested in and in keeping this, this, this beat into a more um, interventionist foreign policy. Meaning, are there, are there actors that are actually invested in this? Are they, I mean, we know that exists on the Republican side, but I mean, I think that there's a suspicion that there's some people who kind of are involved with foundation work overseas, but are there people who are actually invested in war? In the
1: DNC? Not really. I, I, again, I think that that these are political calculations that get made, which which in some ways makes it more deplorable. <laughs> uh, if actually they did do it because they really thought, you know, we need a hell of a good war to knock that guy out, that's one thing. But it usually comes down to we don't want to seem weak because we got an election coming up, and you know, and and we we want to position ourselves, whatever. And it's the fact that the political calculation is wrong that bothers me. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a smart political calculation. Uh, it also has consequences in terms of what it does in the, in the world. I mean, you know, do, do I think that um, if, for example, Democrats came out against Donald Trump's moving the embassy to Jerusalem, as he wants to do in May, do I think that would have electoral consequences? I really don't think it would. I think it wouldn't. I, I mean, I think that, that there would be more voters who would say, thank God somebody's finally standing up and being smart and and and, and whatever. But y- you look within the establishment of the party and the candidates, there's a kind of a fear. They all walk around like, oh God, they're going to get me and I might lose if I do this. So it's that political calculation thing that is is more the factor than any conviction that this is the right thing to do. But let's um, be
0: real. Some people have financial interests in pushing that message maybe it wouldn't affect voters, but it would affect uh, some of the the, the sh- campaign
1: contributions. Yes, exactly. Sure, we, we. I mean, yeah, we know that part of it. We know the role of big pharma, big banks, NRA, and APEC, and the pro-Israel groups, and real estate groups, and you know, healthcare groups. I mean, we know all that, but uh, that's part of the political calculation. It's not conviction. It's a factor of money and I don't wanna look weak and I don't need another issue that's gonna be out there. I wanna, they look for the, the, the smoothest, simplest way to, to run and win. And that to me is is kind of what's wrong right now with the party. They wanted to take the war off the table 15 years ago so they could focus on education and healthcare. You can't do that. you know. When Republicans latch onto those issues that create fear, uh, they're going to run all the way to November on that issue, and you got nowhere to go, nowhere to go at all.
0: And, and it did, you know, in two thousand eight. Obviously, there were a lot of factors in two thousand eight, but they ran uh, the most celebrated veteran in the Republican Party, and they ran against Barack Obama, who didn't serve in the war. It was you know his early his his early roots were in being you know protesting, well, at least when he was a senator, yeah. protesting the war. Right. I mean, I don't know if that. How much that factored into the win of two thousand eight? Because there were so many different factors.
1: You know, two thousand eight was a fascinating war. election for me. War. It was a fascinating election because I, I did my doctoral work in religion and postdoc in anthropology, and and the the, the nexus between social change and religious conviction, um, which usually to results in conversion of some sort. You have what they call in the in the in the field revitalization movements. Um, people will be lost and bewildered, there'll be social change going on, and they're kind of like, oh my God, I don't know where to turn, what's going on, I'm confused. And then somebody will come with a message and it juggles the brain in a way that you say, ah, that's it, that's what's wrong. Well, those revitalization movements that occur under stress usually are movements that hearken to the past. It's the golden age of what was, and when men were men and women were, that was Reagan, that's how Reagan ran. Um, Barack Obama represented the first time where it was forward-looking and hope instead of backward-looking, motivated by fear. You had an economic collapse. You had a total lack of trust in government. Not only was the war in Iraq at that point an issue in the country, but you also had Katrina and the total failure of government. And you had this massive explosion of corporate corruption cases that had bankrupted. Um, It started in Texas. Then a couple years later, it was Wall Street and the banks. And in the middle of all of that, when people didn't know what was going on, 20% of their or 30% of their pensions were gone. Their houses were under foreclosure. Unemployment doubled in a period of six, seven months. Um, In the middle of that, you get this guy coming along saying, "We have to believe in the future." And they actually bought it. And they want they wanted to believe in the future. It took only two months after he won for Republicans to regain their footing and start to eat away at that with the Tea Party and questioning his very legitimacy and playing on the race card is what they did. But uh, that election was fascinating because I argued at the time that it wasn't just two candidates and two philosophies, one forward looking, one backward looking. It was two distinct images of what it meant to be an American, you know, wear a uniform, and being um, uh, a, a war hero, quote unquote, versus uh, being involved in protest, social change, and being a minority. Uh, by the way, um, as he used to say. Oh, and by the way, I'm black. Um, you know that that was a fascinating contest, and uh, more people bought that uh, than than bought the other, which I think was really quite significant
0: flash forward now um, in the post obama era and you have a a very well educated and woke generation um and a younger generation that you know doesn't really have a name yet who are going to be voting in the next election um and then you have a dnc that is still for the most part being run by the same folks that were running it in in 2003 15 years ago no. uh, where what can young people do so that they they feel like their voices are being heard at this moment, this
1: critical moment. They're doing it. I mean, I think what happened in Parkland and what I've seen since then is is awesome. I mean, my, my brother in his book called The Way We'll Be, The Transformation of the American Dream, observed a dynamic that we first saw play out in the Obama campaign. And that was a reversal of roles where my generation grew up looking to the greatest generation of the World War II. We took our value orientation from them, we took our cues from them on policy, Um, I can't tell you how many Obama events I went to when I was doing surrogate speaking for him. when people would come up to me, whether it was, you know, fourth generation American or recent immigrant from Bangladesh, they'd come up to me and they'd say, I'm here because my kids wanted me to be here. Um, it was, it was the the children shall lead them. Um, and you see that not only in politics where, I mean, why do we today have massive recognition? of of gay rights and and the the right of gay people to marry. Kids. It was kids that actually spurred their parents forward on that. It was kids who taught us how to be environmentally conscious. It's kids who taught us to be tolerant and and accepting of 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 people all over the world. This global generation has a worldview that is totally distinct and and quite significant and actually matches my generation's the anti war you know, we were the first generation to kind of go through that social and cultural upheaval. Those two generations met and we met in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Interestingly enough, it was really old people and it was really young people um, who both smelled authenticity, they could sense it. This guy's real, the other one's not. And they felt that the issue spoke to them. Um, and so I am totally confident that kids are gonna be a major factor. And this is one of the issues that, you know, you, you taught me, actually, to look at the numbers. I I do polling, but for, for the longest time, we always modeled the, from the last election. And so we had 38 Dem, 33 Republican, 27, whatever like that. You know, now I start looking deeper and you look at people who don't do um, weighting of poll numbers, like Pew, comes up 41% independent. And among millennials, it's 50 something percent independent. If we're not talking to them, we're going to we're going we're to it's our death knell. Um, and and um, people who don't get it, I mean, the people who are still fighting Bernie do not understand what Jesse Jackson used to say. It takes two wings to fly. You got to have both the progressive wing and the moderate wing. You have to reach independence and speak to them as well as diehard Democrats. That is a majoritarian coalition that can win. And um, uh, I, I think kids are doing it. And so I, I'm, I'm really confident that it's gonna, there's changes. The question is how much damage gets done along the way. And that's what Trump is doing now is just damaging the culture of, of the country, the political culture and the, 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 the everyday life of people. I mean, it's just, it's disgraceful attitudes that have developed. People feel comfortable saying things they never felt before. And I'm not sure he's not gonna get us into a war before it's over. I mean, if if those guys in the white house think that it's the way to win, they may actually start one just to make him a wartime president. And, uh, and so the, the, you know, the, the, the pudgy little coward who didn't fight any wars will be the war president, just like he's going to condemn some cop down in, in, in Florida for freezing, calling him a coward. I mean, but he, he doesn't, there's no sense of shame. And, and so if, if, if this is the guy who ran against involvement in foreign wars, he will have one if he feels he needs to have one to create the fear and insecurity to win again.
0: And my fear is um, it actually won't work because the toothpaste is out of the tube, as they say, and yeah. people, people are you know, aware of what's.
1: But, well, as I said, the damage that gets done along the way is, 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 is consequential.
0: Dr. Zogby, also I should say, chair of the Sanders Institute. I left out that one. You have so many titles, sure. it's hard to keep up. But that's an important one. Uh, we can we can see you everywhere. You're you're very active on Twitter, which you know we love. Well,
1: Trying. I'm learning <laughs> from you guys how to do it.
0: Great, Thank and you. everybody
1: who watches can follow me at. Yes. JJZ 1600. It's going to be right The 1600 there. is my office address.
0: Oh, um, now they're going to find you.
1: <laughs> yeah, folks. Uh, it, I, all my email and everything addresses were set up by folks in my office. Um, and I wondered why, why are we doing that? Why, why can't I just be Jim Zogby or something? They thought oh, it was yeah. cute. And clever. Anyway, thank you, Nomi. Thank you.